Dr. Carlos Campo is president of Regent University. Regent University is located in Virginia Beach, Virginia. He is a leader of one of the great higher education institutions in this country. This is a center of Christian thought and leadership. A week ago Saturday, they graduated 1,345 students. They have 6,000 students in their student body. They offer some 70 graduate and postgraduate degrees. He is a leader in education in this country. We are very happy to have him here. Please help me welcome Dr. Carlos Campo. Let us pray. Gracious God, pour your spirit through Dr. Campo just now. Enable us, O oh God, to be responsive to the hints that the Spirit gives us through His good word. Free us to be your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thanks, Pastor Dave. Thank you for ministry here in the church. Thank you for the way you've greeted me. Thank you to the worship team. Wow, that was awesome. Blessing. I feel at home in this church. I have been here all of three times in the past, before today. But I do. I feel at home because there is family here. Not just my cousin, Mancita and Terry, but my wife, Karen, is here. Honey, please greet folks. 33 years we have been together. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Hallelujah. I know. She wasn't seven when we got married, but it does seem that way. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I know, it's scary. No, <clears throat> not true of us. And I have to apologize because, <clears throat> see, I spent... 18 years teaching English composition. So let's have a moment of just of silence, just a, a prayer. 18 years uh, slaving with underprepared students, of course. <clears throat> but I always transmute the place that I'm in into a classroom. So I apologize if I've desecrated your church for a few minutes, but I can't help it. Plus, the educators in my university tell me that this old sage on the stage stuff doesn't work any longer. Instead, things have to be interactive. So there will be a number of pop quizzes. There, I'm not kidding, uh, not a little. So yeah, so please sit up straight. Someone is filming you even at this instant. Here, here's your first question. Here's your first question. The finest work in English literature, I won't leave that to you to decide. It's been decided long before today. It's Hamlet, of course. But the, <laughs> if, you, if you don't agree with that, we're going to meet outside a little bit later. We'll arm wrestle and you'll win. Anyhow, here, here you're now going to tell me the most famous line from Hamlet. Very, listen, beautifully done as though we'd rehearsed that. Nicely done. See, you recollect those lines because they have value. That's the idea. Remembrance equals value. That's what we believe. And while it's true that that is the most famous line in the play, there is another line in the play that I can't shake. Isn't it funny? Some things you can't shake. Uh, someone said a long time ago, we, we probably remember the things we should forget and forget the things we should remember. Uh, you know what sticks in my head are like stupid songs. Right? And this isn't a stupid song, but because we drove through Ventura, you know the song that's in my head and has been for three days, and I'm thinking about what, what is a gator lizard in the air? What, what is that in Ventura Highway? Anyway, I don't even want to think. What is a gator lizard in the air? Will someone stay late and tell me about that? But here's the line from Hamlet I can't shake. It's a two-word phrase. It's the last word that Hamlet's father's ghost speaks to him when they have their first encounter. Here are the two words. Remember me. 
Now, now here's what I can't shake about those lines. Let, let's put this in context. This is the ghost of your father who's come back to speak to you and says to you, among other things, you must kill my brother because he killed me. And if you don't kill him, I have to wander for eternity. I mean, do you need a reminder about that? Right? Must you say, Father, remember me? Do you think I'm ever going to forget this encounter with the ghost of my father? But, and of course, Hamlet swears in that very scene. I'll uh, dash all other things from my brain, and this single command I'll remember forever. But we know the play. The, the play is literally the evidence that he doesn't remember. And so he berates himself time and time again, calls himself a rogue and peasant slave and a whore and all of these kinds of things because he's forgotten his own father. And I think to myself how right that interplay, between the waxing and waning of, between the things we should remember and the things we forget. So what's the Christian corollary? What's the corollary in Scripture? Is it not at some level Christ with his disciples three years with these men, let's break bread together, and as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. I mean, it's a very clear, seemingly corollary between those two lines. Remember me. And I know that remembrance in that time of communion is much more than just a reminder from God to tell us to not forget him, but is it not interesting that that same interplay of remembering and forgetting takes place in our Christian walk? While it's a reductivist view of history to say that the history of the church is a history of remembering and forgetting, I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible very much is that history. You have forgotten me. And then someone remembers God and opens his word as though it had been shut and reads it afresh and anew. And we remember together and weep for the things of God. That's what we see. See, because we are a people who have a propensity to forget. Just that simple. We have a propensity to forget. I mean, I think about the things I have in my life to remind me. See, I'm feeling for them now. I'm feeling for this device that, that I set to remind me of six or seven or eight things a day. Right? The reminder goes off, and then I think I have to have a reminder to remind me what this reminder is for. <laughs> What's this one for? Okay. Right, here's a reminder. Uh, Post-it notes. What are they? What are they? I know they have a variety of functions, but the primary function of this multi-million dollar thing is to remind us of something so that we don't miss. We have calendars. We, we use things like coconut oil. Someone told me that coconut oil helps from memory. I'm guzzling that stuff now. Oh, I'm telling you what, I have an IV in the car. It, if, it, if it helps, I'm giving it a shot. I do this horrible thing with my wife. Do you do this with your loved one? Honey, don't let me forget this thing, right? I make it her responsibility. What is that? Honey, don't let me forget. Or, or you do you do this, uh, this thing where, uh, honey, what's Chris's wife's name? Chris's wife's name? Oh, she's, um, she's uh, and here we go, like for the next five minutes. We're trying to remind each other what her name is, and then when we come up with it, right, it's Heather. Oh, it's Heather. We celebrate like some crazy couple, right? Oh. <laughs> but it's that one wondrous moment of recollecting, right? It's really sad. <laughs> but it's this... Uh, because it's this deep belief that we have that that which we value, we remember, right? The most frightening moment, right? I'm shaking millions of hands in my life, part of my job. I shake a hand, someone comes up, here's this frightening moment. Hi, I met you before, do you remember me? 
and I'm smiling and thinking, please be kind and tell me why I should remember you. Tell me your name now. Please say it because if you're waiting for me, and of course that's what they're waiting for because if you don't remember a name, right, you're saying something. I, 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 I guess I'm forgettable. The most horrible thing of all to be is forgettable. Call me evil, but don't call me forgettable, right? A forgettable meal. A forgettable relationship. Forgettable is that horrible thing. That idea is remember my name. It sounds silly. The truth is it was a goal of mine in every class. It was. It took me a few weeks, but I will learn your name. I will learn the name of every student in my class because it did matter. It just does. It says something to the student about what you think about them. It does. It, 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 it's one of those things that I, I try to uh, uh, infuse into our very university. And one of the stories I'll never forget, true story, a man who is today a college president, great leader in the Northwest. He said, Carlos, you know, I remember my first college class, and it was English composition. It is in so many, uh, for so many of us. College composition, I, I know I don't belong in that class. People told me you're not college material. One of my most hated phrases when I hear people say that, you're not college material. Ugh. Anyhow, people had told me that. I knew it was true. I'd finished my first assignment, and here was my plan. My plan was to turn in the assignment, lay it down on the professor's desk, make a 90-degree turn, hit that door, not just walk out the door, leave the class, leave the college, and never come back. You would be stunned to know how frequently that is the case. How many students at university drop out one class, one semester? So here it is. Goes to the front of the class, lays down the paper, makes the right turn. Right before he hits the door, he hears someone call him by name. He said, Carlos, it's the first time in my life that a non-family member knew my first name. First time. First time I ever heard it, ever from a non-family member. He stopped me in my tracks and called me back into the classroom. And he said, among other things, he said, I don't know what you did on this paper. I'm really not sure, but I want you to know this much. It's going to be okay. This is just an English class. We're going to do okay. You're going to pass. You're going to work it out. That's all he said to me. And of course, today, the guy's a college president. See this idea that there is a continuum. Here's the continuum. On the one end is hyperthymesia. It took me a week to memorize that word. Hyper, hyperthymesia. Do you know this condition? It is a medical condition. It's that condition. You've seen these people on television. They're the folks who cannot forget anything. Have you seen them? Stunning thing. Oh, yeah, on October 23rd, it was a Tuesday, and the Red Sox beat the Yankees 4-3. to Have you seen these people? They suffer from, I mean, because it is an incredible blessing, but it has to be a curse. Can you imagine? You forget nothing? Please, God, help me to forget some things. <laughs> right? So, so here on one end of the scale is that hyperthymesia. On the other end of the scale is amnesia. It's where most of us cohere, right? We tend to track toward that amnesia side. Here's what, here's what experts say. We remember about 17% of the things that occur in our lives. Seems like a low number, 17%. We want to believe that the things we remember are the things of value. The things of value, those are the things that we want to remember. And so we have monuments with which to remember them. The Taj Mahal is a monument. It's a memorial to a mother and a wife who died in childbirth, and he swore, you have this baby, and the baby survives. I'm going to build something memorable. Taj Mahal. Just a few weeks ago, I was in Littleton, Colorado, and I saw a sign for the Columbine Memorial. So I pulled in. I just wanted to see it. Pulled in, got out, 
and it was an incredible crisp day. It was actually two days from the anniversary. Do you want to hear this? It was 14 years ago. Does that take your breath away? It did mine. 14 years ago, this Columbine massacre took place. So I walked around the grounds. I, I saw these memorials to each of the children from the parents. It was unbelievably moving. Each of them said a few things about their child that they'd lost. The community, uh, some quotes from the community were listed as well. And I was taking it all in and praying and thinking and wondering if some of the parents might have not been of the few folks who were visiting, just a few there. And then I read, as I turned around to leave, I read huge words on the floor that said, never forgotten, never forgotten. And I think to myself that that's probably true that that memorial will stand and will remember what occurred there, right? This idea that collective memory protects us against repeating things like that. But I also noted that some things at the memorial seemed a little dilapidated, and there weren't many people there. And I thought about the fact that there have been so many other more recent tragedies that for me it had fallen off my radar in some ways. I'd forgotten it a bit. I'd forgotten it. And I think to myself about the fact that even though we have literal memorials and figurative ones, we often forget. I mean, Shakespeare's 55th sonnet and other sonnets are about the fact that it's not gilded monuments or marble that will last through time, but this powerful rhyme, he hopes, right? Tennyson wrote In Memoriam, this incredible poem remembering his greatest friend. He spent over 25 years, 25 years writing that poem almost as a testament to say, I can't forget you because if I forget you, it means I didn't love you. It's almost what we believe. And we construct calendars, religious calendars, right? It's one of the things we do. We construct religious calendars to help us remember important days. We uh, sing rhymes to ourselves, mnemonic devices to remember things like the ABCs. I mean, do you still do things like this? You know, let's see. Uh, okay, uh, my name, I've got, got to find the letter N, N. Let's see. And, oh, okay, now I've got it. Do you do stupid things like that? See, don't admit it. I already did. So we do these, we, we still do these things to remember that, that idea of memory. And today, right? This day, Mother's Day, is a memorial. It, the cynics among us may say, well, it's invented, it's hallmark. People that say that forgot to get her a card. I mean, I know, I know how that is. It's on the calendar because we want to take a day to say to moms, thank you. Honor your father and your mother. What an incredible commandment. Not honor your father and your mother if they're good to you and they're good parents. Honor your father and your mother. So we set apart Mother's Day. I loved hearing about those things that you remembered about your mom. And so you have to indulge me for a moment because I have to do my own tribute to my mother. She was an incredible woman, and I know I have idealized her as a lot of moms, a lot of sons do of their moms, especially if you had a praying mom, and you kind of feel like the reason you're serving God today is because of her. I know it's God's providence. But my mother, Betty Clooney, some of you know, um, some of you know, knew her, perhaps, and certainly her sister, Rosemary, um, and Sita's mom. Uh, they walked out of a Cincinnati apartment to a local radio station and won a talent contest, and they were just a couple of kids. They were a couple of teenagers. Incredible woman, incredible career. And I remember her for the 17 years of my life that she was alive. We lost her far too young, 45. She died of a cerebral aneurysm, literally overnight, that fast. 
But this is one of the things I remember about my mom, the most enduring legacy. That's what we remember, right? The legacy. The legacy of my mother is that she loved people. She had this smile. You'd walk into a room, my mother would look you in the eyes, and she would smile at you, and you had no past. You had no past. Siobhan, am I right? You had no past with my mother. Didn't matter what your past was. All right now, you're in this moment, and I love you. I love you. That's what she expressed to people. It was, it was transcendent. It was Jesus. That's what I believe. My mother reflected Jesus like no person I've ever known before or since. So, so I think about that legacy in her. I mean, the, the embarrassing thing was my high school friends would come over to my house not to see me. <laughs> You're laughing. That, see? Still, the shame of it all. They came to see her. And who wouldn't? See, that's, that's the legacy. That, see, we are all three generations from oblivion. All of us. Three generations from oblivion, right? You can tell me something about your great-grandmother, really? Can you tell me something of her personality characteristics? Can you? You're among like a tiny percentage of human beings on this earth if you can. And then I'll just go another generation and you won't remember. But what about the legacy? What's enduring? What's worth remembering? What shall we never forget about one another and our moms and others? And I think about the legacy that she has left, and I think about who gave it to her. Mom, where did you learn that? And thank you for that gift. Thank you for that gift. It wasn't the only one she gave me. She gave me another incredible gift, and it was a love for learning. My mother, who did not graduate from the ninth grade, loved the Russian novelists. How was it possible? She was self-taught. She taught herself to speak Spanish better than I can today. This Irish woman from Kentucky played those awful 78 records. Jose está en la sala. ¿Qué pasó con Jose? My, my mother learned Spanish. She was fluent. And I know she'd say to me later, Honey, I was not going to go to one of those family gatherings and have your father's family talk about me and me not know what they were saying. So <clears throat> there was a little incentive there. Oh my gosh, I'm telling you what, my poor wife, when she first came to our first family gathering, she said, why are people screaming at each other? I said, honey, nobody's screaming. They all seem so angry. No, Irish, Cuban, I'm sorry, you put that together. People are just, they're just loud. They're just loud and happy. But my, my mom used to read to me. That literally was this legacy. She loved words. She loved language. And I'll, I frankly will never forget her reading Robinson Crusoe, Daniel Defoe's novel, one of, the great, one of the first novels in the world. And go back and read that sometime, not the Reader's Digest version. It is not simple language. She didn't dumb it down. She didn't get me some kid's version. She read Robinson Crusoe to me. She blessed me with those words. And I think to myself, the the love that I have for language and learning stemmed from this woman, part of her legacy. So here I am at a college or university where we sit around and we think, what's the most important thing to teach? This is a critical thing. Right? What's the most important thing? Do you know that every learning institution in the world teaches three things, three things that they try to measure, right? If you can't measure it, if you're teaching it, how do you know? You know? So here's what, we, here's what we measure. One of the things we measure is, what do you know? Okay? So we teach you something, we force you to memorize it, we have some instrument that helps you regurgitate it or somehow tell us uh, what you know. Right? So here's what every graduate uh, with an undergraduate degree in history should know about history. Okay? Pretty straightforward. Here's the second thing we, we test. Teach. Skills, right? So what you know and what you can do. Can you write well? 
we're going to test that, see what your skill is like in writing. Can you communicate orally and otherwise? Can you do that? Uh, can you think creatively, reflexively? We can test for that. Those two are pretty straightforward. The third one, not so straightforward. It's called attitudes, right? What attitudes do you want to transmit to the student body? See, this is tough. This is tough because this idea is we preserve and transmit that which we value. Let me say that again. We preserve and transmit that which we value at a university, at a church, in your home, your family, right? What are the things, what are the things that make the Campo family the Campo family? How do we preserve those and then transmit them to the next generation? We ask the same thing about our university all the time, and universities all over the country ask the same thing. But that third piece <clears throat> is tough because we can't agree as well as we could have even 50 years ago. We believe that there were certain things, certain attributes, certain attitudes, certain abilities that every student should have. We had a much more cohesive and not so diverse philosophy regarding what's most important to impart beyond the knowledge and the skills. What else? And so most schools, frankly, have abandoned that. They have. They just have. They've made a decision. It's not an easy decision, but I understand why. So at Regent, we, we're trying to stick with what's most important. So here's your second quiz question. What's most important? We go back to the very first question asked in Scripture. The very first question asked in Scripture. Don't think this is easy. It's not. This is your second attempt to show the acuity, your incredible memory, your knowledge of Scripture. Don't miss this opportunity. What's the first question in Scripture? Where are you is one of the earliest. Very good, but not the first. The first is, hath God said, I know, did God say, did he say that if you ate of this tree, see the very first question that that beautiful creature asked was, what did God say? What did he say? Do you know God's word? Do you know what he's saying to you? Do you know? See, so to me, that's where we, be, that's where we try to begin. And if you're going to begin with God's word, where do you start? Do you not start in Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, starting with verse 4? Hear, O Israel, the Shema Israel, part of it. Incredible thing, these Bible scholars at Regent that can read the original language. Tell me, this is it, Carlos. This is where, where it all begins. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And love him with everything that you have. Love him. Get these commandments inside of you and then get them in your children. I know I'm glossing a little bit, but that's what it says. Get them in your children. Talk to them all the time when you're coming and going. Tie it on your head. Tie it around your wrist. There's a word for this thing. It's called a phylactery. Have you seen these things? They're a phylactery. There are small leather boxes and they're worn by observant Jewish men. Matter of fact, I looked up the definition because I wanted to see what it said. It said, observant Jewish men wear them. They wrap them around their heads. They're small leather boxes. They look strange. They wrap them around their arms. Right? With the, so here it is. And I think to myself, it takes an observ observant Jewish man to do this, to follow a command of God. It's in the Shema. It's so important that God said, don't forget this. Don't forget it, right? We have forgotten God. He has not forgotten us. Don't forget it. It's that important. How do we transmit those things to students? What do we really believe about the things that are most important? See, truth is what we're after. That's what we say. Every university says we're about truth. We want to dig deeply. And that's what I say to people. If you really want to know truth, it has to be a journey toward God at some level. It simply must be. Whatever else you're studying, 
There has to be that pattern. See, that's what we believe. Our understanding of knowledge is how God's purposes intertwine with the with the history of mankind. A poet recently said, the earth is not made up of atoms, it's made up of stories. You shall be witnesses for my sake, this incredible idea that we are building narrative truth together. And at this moment, we have this intersection. How wonderful. At this moment, all of our stories, isn't this incredible? All of our stories at this moment have this tiny moment of intersection. So where truth intersects study, there is God. Where truth intersects study, there must be God. Somebody says, I, I'm, I'm an atheist, but I'm following hard after the truth. I think you're okay. You're okay. You're, you will find God. If you are following hard after the truth, I don't care what you call yourself. It's not in my business. But I care deeply about that which we transmit. See, here's the last question. I come full circle in my study of Hamlet, and I think about Hamlet in his initial response, the one we remember. He was suicidal, right? That's where he was. And I just want to take a moment just to say this directly to somebody. I don't know who I'm speaking to, but I just want to say this directly to somebody. God hasn't forgotten you. I don't know who I'm speaking this to, but I want you, want you to hear this today. God has not forgotten you. He has not. Whatever your circumstances say, whatever others are telling you, God has not forgotten you. See, Hagar knows our God sees. C.S. Lewis says, the Christian person who has no evidence for God in their life, feels forgotten and forsaken by God, but obeys his word anyhow, is the most powerful creature on earth. So Hamlet, suicidal, really missing his dad, not figuring things out, not sure why Ophelia has flipped out on him and become this creature he no longer recognizes. But not in Act 5. Do you remember this? Do you remember this? In Act 5, he says to Horatio, you know, Horatio says, yeah, I know you're going to fight Laertes. Laertes is a much finer swordsman than you are. You are going to die. He is going to kill you. This isn't fun. I can call this off. I'll make up an excuse. Please, Hamlet. And Hamlet says, no, don't do that. You know, whether I die today or tomorrow, it doesn't matter. If it happens today, then it'll be today. If it'll be tomorrow, then, then it'll be tomorrow. He says, let be. And then he seems to quote Scripture. Do you remember the bird to which he refers when he quotes Scripture in Act 5? What bird does Hamlet refer to? A sparrow is right. Please stand to be recognized for your... Thing. Yes! Yes, that man... A lover of Shakespeare and an ornithologist in your congregation. <laughs> Unbelievable. A sparrow. a sparrow is right. There is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. See, folks, I close with this thought about what we truly remember. What do we really believe? See, when I think about a great education, when I think about what's really important to know, I have to ask the question, well, what is this, what's the end of all of this? You are being educated to what end? Where are you headed? See, when Alice in, Alice in Wonderland meets the Cheshire Cat and she's lost, as she seems to be so often, and says, which road do I take? He says, Alice, where are you going? That's the right question. Before I answer your question, Alice, I've got to know your destination. She says, I don't know where I'm going. He said, any road will do. <laughs> You're going to be okay, Alice. Alice, all of a sudden, I became Jackie Gleason. Alice not even right. 
I'll see you again. You're on a circular road, Alice. It'll be, it'll be all right. So, so what's the end? What's the end? See, to construct our remembrance, we have to know what's, what's most important. And Hamlet says it in that passage. See, there is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. That's what we believe. That is what we believe. Providence, even in something that seems so forgettable, God is there. Here's what Jesus said. Five sparrows, two pennies. Most insignificant of birds. It takes an exceptional human being to remember a sparrow. Five sparrows, two pennies. Then he says this, yet your father forgets or has forgotten not one of them. That's what Jesus said. God said that he doesn't forget a single sparrow. So Hamlet got it right. There is providence in the fall of a sparrow. On Mother's Day, this memorial to moms, let's think about what's most important. Most important. Pop quiz aside, what's most important when it's all said and done? This is a prelude. This is it, a prelude. We are all going to sit before the throne of God, every tribe and every tongue worshiping him. That's what we believe. That's what we believe. Our God, a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his providential hand being a part of that. That's what we believe. So while we may be a people predisposed to forget, while it may be simple for us to see ourselves as amnesiacs, that would be my prayer. That today we take that time to say, God, what is valuable to me? What is it about your word that has transformed me that I see as part of my legacy that I'm giving out to everyone in the 6,570 waking hours I have per year? How do I give it away? Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we are a, a people given to forgetting your incredible blessings, Lord forgetting your presence and forgetting that even in that which is most innocuous and seemingly forgettable, your hand of providence is there. Lord, let us not miss you today. God, and if we're far from you today, help us to know that you've never forgotten us, not one, not one. Lord, and we ask a special blessing upon moms today. Great moms and moms that struggled at being moms, bless them today. Help us to honor them today and honor you above all things. In Jesus' precious name, amen.